evening we're going to go from chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. In the King James Version, there's a little subtitle at the beginning of this chapter called The Loveless Church. And I think that's an appropriate title for the servant, The Loveless Church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read through this. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to the, the studying of God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and you and that you cannot tolerate, tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not at, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise, which is in the paradise of God. Gracious God, we're thankful for your word. As we look into this text, we are going to see what the things that you love about a church and the things that you despise about a church. Lord, may you... Uh, make us look into our own, not just the church as a whole, but our own soul individually. And may we be humbled by your word and may we be transformed uh, and repent of any sins that we may have against you. Be with us tonight. We praise you in your son's name. Amen. When I was in college, I had a friend in my Bible study that uh, was working in the health and safety. Uh, for he, she did it for restaurants. And I remember asking her once about, uh, what do you do, like, exactly? What is it that you're, you do for the restaurants? What are you doing there? And then she says she kind of goes in, like, undercover. She doesn't reveal herself. But uh, she goes there, and she starts uh, grading everything secretly. She takes a little notepad and writes some things that are wrong. And, and asks, what are these criteria? What do you do inside the restaurant? Like, and she gives examples, like, she look at the utensils, if she sees a fingerprint, that they get a dock of points. And then she looks at the table, if it's sticky somewhere, and, and they don't wipe it, and there's a, a dock point there. She looks at the floor. She looks at everything that goes on in the kitchen. She has this little, this little badge that will allow her to say, hey, this place is shut down. Um, or uh, if you know she's assigned, she actually is the one that gives those little grades to the restaurants. And then and you know those grades, this is funny because it's like the Asian restaurants are always like B and below. And, and I'm just imagining how frustrating the, the owners would be. It's like, oh, an Asian's getting B, that's not, that's not right. And I think that's why they switched it to like pass and no pass. But I digress. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's this, there are all these different criteria that they have. They look at the, uh, the whole uh, restaurant and they could go in the back. They could look at every little thing that they have. And I wonder if, let's say, a visitor came to our church, and obviously now since we're doing virtual, if they join our live feed on Sundays or even uh, on our Friday nights or whatever Bible study that we have that are online, what kind of impression do you think they will have of our church? based on the way that we interact with each other, based on the way that we teach, what do you think that they would say? And I think there's a, 
there is a, I mean, when we were meeting in person, uh, there, there was a temptation for individuals to visit our church and be very critical at times about things that are very superficial. They're very uh, subjective at times. I like the worship music. I don't like the worship music. I like that pastor's preaching. I don't like that pastor's preaching. Depart from us. Uh, I like uh, this, uh, but I like the children's program. I don't like the children's program. There's always these random things that they have that they use to kind of grade the church. And in our world, when we have things like Yelp and, uh, you know, things that are, everyone basically is a critic, really the only critic that matters is that in, in the context of the church is the one that Jesus gives. In fact, if Jesus came to our church, what would he say about our church? What would he say that is pleasing to him? I wonder how Christ, if he came to our church, will grade us. In our modern time, especially in these last several months, there's been criticism from both inside and outside the church about what the church is supposed to be. And usually, um, you know, just watching all things on social media and seeing the news, one of the things I see, especially the Christians that are talking about one another, there tends to be one thing that they never ask. They always talk about, oh, are you wearing masks? Are you uh, meeting in person? Are you not meeting in person? Are you uh, having, doing all of these different regulations? But yeah, the one question people have failed to ask is this, how is your love, how, do, you, do you love Jesus Christ? Is your love for Jesus growing? That's a question that's often omitted. We look at the superficial things about the church instead of the thing that actually matters. That's why I, I want to get into this series in the next several weeks when I'm preaching through each of these seven churches. This is designed for us to have a heart check, for us to, to, to evaluate not just our church collectively, but, our, but ourselves individually. Our church is made up of individuals. Uh, so when you look, when we go through each of them, don't think about SFDC as a whole, to think about yourself and how that, um, how your faithfulness in the church or your time at SFDC will impact the rest of the church. Christ didn't look at uh, the, all of these churches. Christ didn't look at their ministries per se, but looked at the, their collective whole that's made up of individuals that may have been doing well in one areas and also things that they aren't doing well in other areas. Jesus will tell us through uh, this, these two chapters what he thinks about the churches. Again, he's not talking about the physical building of the church, uh, but he's really speaking to the inhabitants of the church, not those that are, uh, not necessarily those who are doing the ministry, but just the heart behind those that are doing the ministry. Now remember, each of these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, these are real churches. These are seven real churches where there's seven real people, or real people living in uh, the seven real congregations. And these are seven real messages. And these churches really existed. And God has a real message for each and every single one of these churches. The author of the book of Revelation is John. The Apostle John, the one that uh, the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, he's a, he has a very unique relationship with Jesus. He, at this point in the book of Revelation, Revelation is the last living apostle. At this time, he is uh, exiled in the island of Patmos, which is kind of like a jail, essentially, but he's still able to uh, write letters here and there. And this is what this letter is about. This letter is, it functions in multiple ways. In chapter 1, verse 19, it says this, therefore, write the things which you have seen and things uh, which are and things that will take place after these things. So there's a, a sequence of events. They're, they're going to talk about what's going on presently in their time and then talk into the future. And we're not going to go into the future stuff. We're just going to talk about these seven churches that Jesus is speaking to 
during the time with the writing of this letter. Ephesus is uh, is a very uh, is a main city in the Roman Empire. Uh, they're they're what they're known for is actually um, their 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 pagan worship. Uh, there's a temple there to Artemis or Diana, and that's uh, a, a, a Greek god that's devoted to uh, basically sexual promiscuity, um, and that's what that area is known for. If you were in that time and you say, oh, I'm from Ephesus, there are certain things that come to their mind. And we understand even in our context what that, what, what that means. When we say uh, the Vatican, you think of Roman Catholic, right? When we, think of, when we say Mecca, you think of Islam. When we say Utah, you, will, you might think of Mormons. You know, there's certain locations that are associated with that type of religion. And Ephesus is known for uh, Diana, and Diana, there's a huge uh, temple there, and it's, it's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a very beautiful place. And John, and then Ephesus is, has actually four letters written that's in our scripture. There's Ephesians, uh, there's uh, First and Second Timothy, and then there's this part here in Revelations. Ephesus uh, is one of the seven churches here that are mentioned, and it's interesting as you just kind of, if you ever get a chance this, uh, this week or next week or whenever you have time, and you read through all these seven churches, you'll notice that God responds to each of them based on their context and their culture. God grades them based on where they're at. And this is, this is something that we need to be mindful of when we think about our church. You know, God is going to judge us based on our context based on this, uh, the resources that we have, based on the people that we have. He's not going to judge us based on what another church has in terms of their resources or, um, or their people. It's a stewardship issue. Each church has their own context. Each church has their own individuals. And God's going to grade them accordingly. So then this means that for us, there shouldn't be any uh, sense of pastoral or church envy. Like we look at a church, oh, they have this type of building. They have that type of program. I wish our church has that. That's, that's a form of envy. And at the same time, we, want, we don't want to be the inverse as well. We don't want to be prideful. We don't want to say, oh, well, we're doing this type of ministry and they're not doing it. So therefore, we are more godly than they are. And we should not do those things. We need to look at how, uh, we need to just look at ourselves. How can we be faithful in the context that we're in so that the Lord will be pleased? Ephesus is the church in Ephesus is is by far in the of the seven churches is, is probably the most mature church at one point. This church was established by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, the very first pastor there was Apollos, and then it was passed down to Paul. And you know, when Paul was there, he was there for two years, and before he left, he told them about how these false teachers will come. And after Paul was Silas, and then Silas was Timothy, and then Timothy was there, and then this is first and second Timothy it was written to Timothy to for as he's pastoring the church of Ephesus, which if you read then in that context, it should be very sad because some of the things that Paul is telling Timothy to do, the Ephesus church is, is, is you know, they're the ones that are like, uh, they're, have, they're not understanding the roles of, of gender and, and eldership. They're, not, they're the ones that are not understanding how to treat widows. They're the ones that are, are not taking God's word seriously. So when you go from Ephesians, when Paul wrote it, all the way to 2 Timothy, you can see how there's a downgrade. And Paul tells Timothy to continue to preach the word. And then the very last pastor in Revelation, I mean, in Ephesus, I believe, is John. He's the one he's writing to them here. He's the last pastor there. So that means from when it was established to when John was there, there's a span of 50 years. 
And now again, I want to make this a little parallel to our church. SFBC has been around for give or take about 50 years, and we've had our uh, past a line of pastors that had, that vary in terms of length and effectiveness. Some of you guys know just from starting from Pastor Roger and myself going back to Alton to uh, Pastor Chan, Pastor Henry, and we go to think of uh, Wayman Lee and Pastor Sen, all of these other people in the past. There's some I'm missing in, in between, I'm sure, but uh, there's a line of, of faithful preachers and, and teachers. And, not, and yet, when we think about our history, our churches, not many of the original uh, founding members of our church are still here. I know Bill's sister is one of them. I'm not going to tell you how old she is. I'll let you guys ask her. Uh, that's not something I would like go into. But she was one of the original members. Uh, there was a picture that I saw of, of these few ladies. I think it was like five or seven of them that were part of that original SFBC. And not many of them, or maybe a few of them, are still here. Uh, and most of us don't know the rest of them. So, but yet some of them, their family is still here. Obviously, Bill is still here, and then the, his kids are here. His grandkids are a part of our church, uh, but the majority of them are are gone. The original group of people are gone. Uh, their the the ministry type, the things that they used to do, we don't do anymore. Uh, I've heard that Pastor Sen, the, the the founder of SFBC, was this hardcore evangelist. He was he just went all over the, the Bay Area, planting churches, and he would just he would just find a place, evangelize, evangelize, and he would have a group of people, and then they become uh, a church. And then that's why the original founders, in a lot of ways, even our giggers, they have this zeal for evangelism because that's what they're uh, they were familiar with. They were um, they were you know, built in that time era, uh, time period where there you could just do all, a whole bunch of evangelism. I think when we think about our time, we are the ones that love scripture. I think we have the best, we, we have like the, the most tools now to be able to discern things about the text that the original people did not have. Um, and again, this is not a pro or con thing. It's just an observation of, of what's going on in, the, in just that every era things change. So in a lot of ways, we may be like Ephesus. Ephesus, again, is a church that uh, was stationed in a place where sexual sin is rampant. And I can't help but making that parallel to our church, I mean, our church context. We're located in San Francisco. When you think of San Francisco, there's certain uh, connotations that come to mind. Uh, some of you guys have gone to the North Creek Biblical Counseling uh, training thing. And oftentimes, I've heard this, I never actually heard it myself, but everyone tells me whenever they go, it's like, oh, they always make this lame joke where, um, well, they'll ask, uh, are there any church from this area and that area? And whenever they get to San Francisco, there's a few people from our church raise their hand, and they're like shocked that they're like, oh, what? There's believers in San Francisco? And then there's like, it's will be a joke, but they always say this, this joke. And, I, and when I hear that, I'm always thinking, well, if you think there aren't any believers, why aren't you sending any people out here to evangelism, man? Or you like Jonah or something when you send a whale? No, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. North Creek, legit. They're, they're great people. Um, but yeah, you know, you understand like San Francisco has a certain connotation. When you hear, when you think, when you hear the name San Francisco, there's a certain thing that comes to mind. And again, Ephesus is like that. Ephesus is a church that there's certain things that come to mind. And, and, the, and the church in Ephesus is this faithful church and was the most mature church for the longest time. So a lot of ways, our location uh, uh, is similar to Ephesus. Our legacy is similar to Ephesus and our lineage is similar to that of the Ephesian church. And Jesus knows exactly what is going on in his church. Look at verse one, to the angels of the church in Ephesus writes, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lamps, says this. 
this phrase walk among us uh, uh, um, is, is basically shows about how God is omniscient and omnipresent. He's everywhere and he knows all things. And he's giving this to the angels of the church in Ephesus. I think when, I, when you think of angel, you're, you're thinking like probably like chubby babies and seraphims and, and uh, cherubims and stuff like that. But that's actually not the best way to think about it. In fact, I don't think that's a good translation because angels could be translated here. And I think it should be better translated as messengers. Um, back then, when, when Paul, after when John wrote this letter, there were, he had to give this letter and then there was probably some uh, representative, some elder there that, um, that would read this and then they would deliver this message to uh, the, the, the respective churches. So each messenger, or probably, again, it's probably the elder of the church that, um, that read what John pens and he goes and gives this message back to the church. And John's writing uh, on behalf of Jesus. I mean, Jesus uh, inspired him to write this to these churches. And so this is our outline for us tonight. And really every single uh, message that we're going through, it's, it's, just, it's the same outline. It's just going to be different churches and there's going to be different emphases. And for, for us, I want us to have a self-evaluation and see if we pass the test. You know, Jesus has a standard on what is a true church, and then in essence, what makes a faithful Christian. So we're going to look at three points, and this is, again, the same point in all seven churches. We're going to look at this, the Ephesus of strength, or the Ephesians strength, the Ephesians weakness, the Ephesians response. So the first one is the Ephesians strength. You see this in verse two to three. Ephesians uh, two. Uh, sorry, uh, Revelation 2, 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. The strength in this church is that they are discerning. They, are, they know truth. They have the ability to know right and wrong. This church was taught well, uh, so they know what the truth of Jesus Christ is. Remember, if you should read the book of Ephesians, you know that they have this whole um, treaty of um, doctrine about what, uh, what Christ has done for them and how Christ purchased them and ransomed with their blood, how they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. They have very good doctrine. And then, so, you know, they were there. And they, again, with the five type of pa pastors they have, they have good teachers. So they're able to know uh, how to discern a false teacher and a true teacher. They, they were able to look at the teaching, the doctrine, or the character or, or of the person. They could tell if they're trying to be, these individuals are trying to deceive them. And they know um, who are for them and who's against them. And this is what Jesus sees. You notice these, the, these words here, toil, work, tests, and perseverance. These are all, they, these, these people worked hard as they defended the faith. This word perseverance is, is like, you know how in football when they're trying to um, inch their way towards the other to, to the touchdown that's the idea here every every yard that's gained they're moving that's perseverance they're pushing forward and that's what they were doing they're pushing against the false teachers these individuals are not simply um learning uh from a legacy of individuals but they uh they were diligent in the ministry that god has given them in ephesus they did not tolerate this word tolerate is resist they resisted um evil men uh, they did not give into the sexual sin of the world. If you jump down to verse 6, you'll see this. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were individuals that called themselves Christians, but their sexual ethics is that of the world. 
they'll say things like, oh, why can't we have same-sex marriage? Why can't we have sex with, uh, why can't we have polygamous marriage? Why can't we have sex with all these other different things, all these debauchery things? These are the people that claim to be Christians, yet they hold to a sexual norms as different and against God. They believe that it's okay to believe in Jesus, but they don't want to give up their sexual sin. Again, this should sound familiar to us in our context. There are churches that are like the Nicolaitans. These are individuals that say, oh, well, God loves um, the LGBTQ, so we should let them to commit, uh, do whatever they want. God loves all, so if we confront their sin or we call it sin, that's hate speech. Yet this is not new. The LGBTQ maybe have new letters and phrases, but it existed back then. They were called the Nicolaitans. If the Ephesian church stood out in their fight against the sexual norms of the day, they held to the biblical ethic. And this group would be, again, equivalent to our modern day world in, in a lot of ways. Ephesus, this church resisted them, and in, they resisted those people in the church, and they resisted it outside the church as, as well. Again, it would seem, just by looking at these passages, that this church was sexually pure. Notice, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. There, um, uh, there was, back then, there was no way for them to you know, send a tweet or email to one another. So the only way that they can discern truth is they have to figure out right then and there. Uh, they just ask uh, solid biblical questions. They ask them about the Torah, I would imagine, or even all of the other letters that the apostles wrote. They tested them. They used scripture and they tested them. They were like the noble Bereans. There were people that came in church and say, I am a prophet of God, and, or I'm an apostle. And they tested them to see if it's true. In the Old Testament, when they test them, they say, okay, there's a vision, and if it doesn't come true, we kill them. But in the New Testament, they just kicked them out. They just uh, did not let them in. Remember, this was Paul's warning to them that when he leaves, there's going to be wolves that's going to come up from even among themselves. So again, they resisted those false teaching in and outside the church. A lot of churches had false prophets and teachers that attempted to creep into the church and take over the church. And Ephesus sees right through them. And looking at our own church and our own life, generally, I think our church is pretty good at discerning false teaching. Some of you guys have sent me emails about this cult uh, that has contacted you. They say, hey, join us in our Bible study. You find out that what they teach is actually not from the Bible. And our elders and our pastors are, are really good at that. We discern whether or not there is such, uh, there is such a thing as, as Lord Zenu or, or does God live in Kolob? The answer to both is, is, is no, they're all lies we can discern that because we know the bible any group that tries to come into the church we're really good at just kicking them out of it um, yet uh, we have to understand that just because we have good teaching that does not make us necessarily um, uh, you know just because we have good teaching doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to carry us to the end of our life uh, these people these people in ephesians they tolerated uh, good teaching. These were mature Christians, and they and they understood how to discern uh, truth from error. First John chapter four verse one says this: "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world." Second uh, Peter chapter two verse one it says, "But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there was." 
there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive, her uh, introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destructions up upon themselves. Second, or sorry, uh, Matthew chapter seven, verse 15, verse 15 to 16, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorns, bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but bad tree bears bad fruit. And again, one more, Matthew 24, verse Five. Jesus writes, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. See, this is just a reality in this fallen world that there's going to be people that are going to try to call themselves Jesus. And yet we know that they are not. These people rejected false teachers. This church was able to discern that. And a lot of modern churches has have been swayed by a lot of uh, have been swayed to false teaching because of lack of discernment in fact if you look at the history of the mormon church joseph smith was able to convince his whole family and they were all bible believing quote unquote people before they joined the mormon cult they lacked discernment they thought that their son really got a message from moroni even though the things that he wrote goes against scripture these, this whole movement came because of people that chose not to confront him on his false teaching, and at the same time, they chose to buy into his false teaching. He needed both to happen in order for a cult to exist. A mature believer, mature Christians are people that have discernment because they know God's truth. Again, our church teaches doctrine pretty well, but my fear isn't so much that we teach you God's word, but my fear is that you are, even despite that we teach God's word, that you're still biblically illiterate. And by biblically illiterate, I don't mean that when you, you, know, you, don't, you can't read English. What I mean by that is that you don't understand or have the ability to discern spiritual truth and error. Sometimes people would say have truths and we buy into it. That means that you're actually not as biblically literate as you might think. Some people can claim, just like bending certain passages to make you think that there's such thing as baptismal regeneration or point to a few verses that contort them, quote unquote, contort scripture to fit their mold and you just give up truth. And I've seen that even in solid churches that some people are turned away to false teaching because they lack, not because they lack good teachers in their lives, but, they, the, but even though they're hearing God's word, they don't process it in their mind. It's possible to have sound teaching in a church and yet not a sound mind. It's possible to have sound teaching in a church without a sound mind. So the church here, Ephesus, they are known, their strength is that they are discerning. They're able to confront false teachers. And I hope that this strength is also your strength. But we need to also make sure that their weaknesses is not our weaknesses as well, that we don't share in their weakness, which gets to our second point, the Ephesian church's weakness, verse four. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The word 
but is usually in scripture is used usually used in the positive. There's all these bad things like we've sinned against a holy God, but God, and then there's something positive. This is where one of one of the few places in scripture where it works in the reverse. He speaks of something, Jesus speaks of something positive and then flips on it and says, this is what I have against you. He knows that these people are fighting and defending the truth, but they lack one very crucial thing, and that is love. They have forgotten their love of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 14 tells us that the love of Christ should control us, should dictate how we live our life. A non-Christian can seemingly uh, on the outside do, on, out, on the outwards, do good things that even a Christian would do outside the church. A false Christian can seemingly do outward good things in and outside the church. What, make, what, what makes a true Christian is only one thing, and that is the love for Jesus. You can fake your work, you can fake your ministry, you can, you can be a member of the church, you can do all the sacraments in the church, you can do all of the church things, you can deceive everyone, but the one thing that you, and the one that you cannot deceive to the Lord is that is love. You cannot lie, um, you can't deceive people, um, I mean, you can deceive people, but you cannot deceive yourself in that you don't love Jesus. People can deceive each other. In fact, it's probably easier to discern false teachers than it is to discern a false Christian. Nobody knows if you truly love the Lord in your own heart. And the challenge for all of us is, again, not to look around us to see, oh, that person clearly does not love Jesus. You need to ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Do you yourself have an affection for Christ? Or is there something else in, the wor- in this world that you love more than Christ? You cannot fake the love for Christ. You can fake your love of Christ because that's external. Other people can see that. But you cannot fake your love for Christ because that is internal. That is all internal. Ask yourself this question again. Do you love Christ? Love, of course, will produce obedience. But the highest command by God to us is that we need to love Jesus. The Ephesian church stopped loving Christ but they still manage to do ministry in the name of Christ. What about you? And all that you've done for Christ, do you do it because you have a genuine love for Christ? The Ephesians fought false teachers and held right doctrine, but they failed to do what Christ expects most of them, and that is to love him. Ephesians had the ability to combat false teachers. They were able to persevere through persecution, but they did not have love for Christ. You can actually fight false teachers um, just for the sake of fighting and to be right. Or you can fight false teachers because you, want, because you love Jesus and you want God's name to be protected and preserved. That, there's, that's the two ways of fighting. You can fight for the sake of fighting or you can fight because you love Jesus. <clears throat> Think of it this way. Imagine if two spouse, uh, a married couple, uh, during their anniversary, one of the spouse gives the other a gift, and then the spouse, the, the, the spouse that receives the gift is like, oh, thank you, darling. And the other spouse responds like, it's just the time of the year. It happens every year. Get over it. Uh, or if you imagine a friend, uh, they said, oh, they give you a boba, and, and you say, oh, thanks for the boba, man. It's like, hey, man, I, don't, I didn't really think about you. It's just buy one, get one free. I just happened to have another one, and you just happened to be in my way. Uh, or of a parent that you buy a gift for your kid, your kid asks, oh, oh, dad, why did you get me this? And then the parent asks, and the parent responds saying, because other uh, kids have it. You know, those are 
somewhat adequate responses, not the best, and they practice some were pretty terrible. And but you can see that although the gesture, the action itself is right, it is cold and heartless because there is no love. Because the best answer is love. Imagine if this again going back to all those three scenarios when the parents or the or the spouse or the friend when they give a gift they ask why did you do this and you say to them or the one person say that because I love you. I love you. That's why I do these things. Do you serve for the sake of serving? Do you defend the faith for the sake of defending the faith? Do you meet in these Zoom meetings for the sake of meeting? Again, these things are good. The, the act itself, the gesture is good. But if you do it without a love for Christ, then it is meaningless. It is completely useless. First Corinthians 13 tells us that even if you give your life up for the Lord, if you don't have love, it is completely worthless. You need to love the Lord. The most, uh, the, your love is more important than all the things that you do for the church. Matthew 24, 12, Jesus talks about how in the, in the future, there will be people in the church where their love have gone cold. Now ask yourself another, in another way, instead of do you love Jesus, ask yourself this, have your love for Christ gone cold in the last six months? We've been sheltered in place for so long, seven months now, actually now. My son is seven months today. Seven months. In the last seven months, have your love for Christ gone cold? And now you can say, well, it's because I don't have fellowship. I don't have uh, the singing. I don't, I'm not meeting people. I'm not in the church building. But you have to understand, John was isolated in the island of Patmos, yet he still loved the Lord. So it has nothing to do with your proximity. It has nothing to do with your ministry. It has everything to do with what's in your own heart. If your love to the Lord have gone cold, you can do all the ministry in the last seven months. But if you don't love Christ, it is completely useless. So what if this is you? What if this is you? What if you realize now that I don't love Jesus the way that I once did? What if the reason why God sovereignly allowed all of this to happen is to reveal to you that you don't really love Christ as much as you say? What do you do? Which gets to our last point this evening. The Ephesians response, <clears throat> Ephesian church's response, verse five to seven. <clears throat> verse five, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remember. That's the key word. We need to remember the time when you first loved Jesus. Remember how you came to know the Lord. Remember how Romans 2, verse 4 tells us the kindness of the Lord is what lead, led us to repentance. Remember the love that he has for you. Remember what he's done for you. Remember how he saved you, how he rescued you. This word remember is an imperative. He commands us to think back to when we were saved, to think back to the point uh, to look back at where we were lacking in the book, The Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, some of you read this book. It's considered a trilogy, even though it has five volumes or five books. Someone clearly don't know how to count. You might be able to write, but can't count. But in that book, there was a scene where, uh, is a famous scene where there was a computer that was calculating 
the, the answer to the biggest question in life is they spent 7.5 million years to figure this out, to figure out the answer. And then finally the computer's like, deep, deep, deep. I have the answer. We finally have, the, we finally uh, process everything. And now we have the answer to the biggest question of life and all the people gathered and they said, like, okay, we're gonna hear this question. We're gonna hear the answer, we're gonna hear the answer. And the answer that came up on the screen was a number 42. And then there was this dead silence because I would imagine in my mind how the scene played out. So people were like, um, computer, what is the question again? And then the computer was like, oh, uh, if we have to find a question, we need to build another computer. And they had to go reverse engineer our answer to figure out what the question is. They don't remember the question. And some people here can say, well, why do you go to church? It's like, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. But yet you don't understand, you may have the right answer, but you don't even understand the question. You have forgotten the question. The Ephesians church forgot why they stood up against the current world, why they kept the, the biblical uh, sexual ethics, why they're defending truth. They forgot everything. They have the right answers, but they forgot the question. They're in, I have to ask you, do you know why you are here? The reason why you do what you do it must be because you love Jesus, that he gave his life for you, that out of his abundance of his love, he ransomed you with his, with his life. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what you forgot. Remember what he did for you. This is how we overcome spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy is when you start going cold. When you start thinking, oh, the Bible is not that interesting anymore. Oh, I've read through the Bible multiple times. I, I'm used to it. Or I, I'm not going to pray as much anymore because I prayed before. He answered prayer and I just pray. <clears throat> excuse me, I can just pray whenever I need to. Um, or I'll just go to church when it's convenient. Or in this case, I'll just go to church and listen to the live stream later and forget Sunday morning. You, you don't prioritize the things that you used to prioritize anymore. And Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love him with all our heart, mind, and soul. And that means the greatest sin that you can commit is to not do that. It's to love something else. If you have spiritual apathy, it means that your love for the Lord has gone cold and there's something else that you love more than Christ. In The Lion King, uh, that's my favorite Disney animation, the, the cartoon one, not the new one. The new one's okay, but the cartoon one, the back in the day. Um, you remember the scene where uh, Simba was in the field, that crazy monkey, and then the, his father appears and he says, uh, you know, it's like, father and then his, his dad tells him this giant cloud like uh you have forgotten me and it's like no i have not like you have forgotten who you are therefore you've forgotten me remember so that you are the one true king and this will be a callback to him to think back when he was a little baby simba remember he had that song i can't wait to be king he was just so joyful and excited to be king he wanted to get rid of that stupid bird he he wanted to you know do all the things that he wanted to do so his father was trying to remember to make him remember who he was. He's the, the king that was meant to be. And in a much greater sense, we have to think that about ourselves. We need to remember who we are. We were saved by God's grace. We were separated. We were once enslaved to the, the dominions of the world, but we were bought out of it uh, through the blood of Christ. Now we're in the kingdom of God. We are joint heirs with him. We are we're part of the royal priesthood. That's who we are. And we need to remember this. And remembering who we are will lead you to repentance. 
through. This is why Jesus says here that do the deeds you did at first. Go back to the time when you make time to study God's word. Go back to the time when you would wake up early or, or cut out time in the day to pray with the Lord. Or remember the time when you were younger, when you were on fire to do evangelism and defending the faith. Go back to that time. Remember what happened in the past. And here's the threat. What if you don't remember or refuse to remember this phrase, little phrase here, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of this place unless you repent. This is a threat from our Lord. And whenever God threatens you, you need to take it seriously. I would imagine if I was in this Ephesus church, I would hope that I would, would bust out in tears and, and cry out the Lord for forgiveness. You know, he's telling them, you need to repent or I'll remove this lampstand. This move, removing lampstand at the end of chapter one, it explains what these lampstands are. Uh, Revelation 1 Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these churches, this is supposed to be a metaphor of, of, of a light, that the church is supposed to be a light in the world. So what Jesus is saying, when he's saying, I will remove your lampstand, means that he's going to remove the effectiveness or the usefulness of this church in the world. There will no longer be light in dark place, rather there will be put Oh, they'll be put out. You know how this is again a re reference to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five about how the light should not be under a bed. You shouldn't keep the light under the bed. It has to be in an open space so it, it can illuminate the room. And Jesus is saying, if you don't remember, if you forget, if you continue to forget me, then I'm going to remove you. I'm going to make sure that you can meet all you want, but you're not going to be effective for my for me in the kingdom. You know what's worse for SFBC is not actually not being able to return but it's that we are able to return, but God will not use us for gospel impact in San Francisco. We can keep meeting or not meet online, but if, if we do whatever without, uh, without repentance of spawn for, from a love for Christ, then we'll just be an empty shell. It'll just be people meeting in the building. Loving Jesus is, is not uh, where you are physically, but where you are internally. It doesn't matter if you walk the hallways if you're not walking closely with the Lord. You know, it's no wonder why in America, a lot of the liberal churches are actually dwindling. The numbers are dwindling. Why are they dwindling? Because they've looked like every other religion. You know, they say, oh, you can believe this and you can believe Jesus. Who cares? Uh, Jesus loves all. Jesus is all things. So whoever you love, that's just, just it's your choice. And then people start to realize, well, then if that's the case, then why do I need to come here? Why do I need to go to any church? I could just believe the God on my own. I don't need to do anything. And that's why the liberal churches now are 10 the numbers tend to be fewer and fewer because they've lost their first love. And those churches don't love Christ, so their doctrine is wrong. But don't think for a second that just because we have the right doctrine, that means that we love Christ. If our heart for Christ grows cold, he will remove any church because those churches are not really doing things to draw people to Christ. They're not doing things uh, out of a connection to the Lord. They're just doing things because they want to do things over loving Christ, which is a form of idolatry, which is a form of being a Pharisee. God will always put his own glory above all else because he's worthy of all worship, 
He's worthy of all praise, but most importantly, he's worthy of our love. Verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice he says, he who has ears, let them hear. This is why I think that it's not just strictly to Ephesus, but to every church of all time. Ephesus is not going to be the only church that's going to struggle with the same thing. And again, I'm making, I'm not saying that we are exactly like Ephesus here in every single sense, because I'm going to go through all seven churches. We might look like all seven churches in different various forms. But again, we want to check our own hearts. He's telling us to listen to him, to listen to Jesus. The result of your repentance is eternal life. Notice that he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This word, this phrase, tree of life, it should naturally draw your mind back to the garden. Because in the garden, there were two trees. There was one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was a tree of life. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's not that they did not know right and wrong. It's just that when they ate from that tree, they became the the deciders of right and wrong. Now, theoretically, if they ate from the other tree, the tree of life, after they ate from the tree of, of, of knowledge of good and evil, that means that they're going to be in a sinful condition and they will never die. That is why the angel, that was why the angel said, like, okay, we need to make sure that they don't come back in here. That's why they need to remove them from the garden. That's why there's an angel guarding the garden with a flaming sword. Because if they went back in there, that would be judgment. That would be essentially hell. Ne there's never going to be a chance for them to get out of their, their sinful flesh. They will, can you just imagine that? Like you living eternity, struggling with sin, and there is no end. But so it's by God's grace and his mercy that he took them out of the garden, that he removed them, but promising one day that there's going to be a way for them to come back into the garden, into paradise. In fact, in the tree of life appears at the end of Revelation. Like it, again, it appears, and, and it's the implication is that believers will eat from this tree and they will have eternal life that the that their life i mean they have eternal life now but we have to experience it physically once we uh, get into that eternal state again that's something that you can study on your own um, but that's how i interpret it and then what's interesting about this phrase tree of life this, this word tree is actually it's not like the tree we think of like the you know leaves and stuff the word tree here is actually used it's the greek word that's used very rarely and the, there's only a few references that's used one is used in references to jesus carrying the cross the cross is called that's the same greek word here or, or the other reference is used in galatians which talks about curses is a man that hangs on the tree so john here is trying to make the connection between paradise and the you know ha having this tree of life and the cross the eternal life comes when you turn to the cross when you Accept Jesus for uh, dying for your sin. The love of God is what grants you eternal life, not your ministry, not your attendance, not any work in the church, any good work, nothing. Only love for Jesus. Return and remember what Jesus did for you in the past now so that you can be with him in the future for all of eternity. When you persevere in this world, because uh, through your love of Christ, if you continue on loving him through all the trying times that is to come for us, you will receive paradise. Some of you, as, you're, as I'm preaching and teaching through the text, you might be wondering, well, I never had that fire for the Lord. I never had that 
that heart, that, that love for him, I can't look back to that time. Well, it's, it could be because you've never been saved to begin with. And for you, just like the ones that are spiritually apathetic, the answer is still the same. That is it. You need to love Jesus. The solution to both is that you need to love Jesus. You need to believe in him. You need to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. And when you do that and you keep that faith, you continue on uh, loving Christ and cherishing him, er, cherishing him every day. One day he, you will see him face to face. You will enter into his paradise. I was talking with Bill uh, the other day about this series, that, this particular series, and he told me that he was at Ephesus. And by that, I don't mean that he was there when John wrote this. He wasn't, he's not that old. Uh, Bill actually visited these places uh, in, you know, like in Turkey, modern day Turkey. Uh, you know, he's visited these different churches and he told me, you know, none of the churches there, oh, Ephesus in particular, that's not there anymore. And that's a very ominous and grim warning for us that if Ephesus, the church that had such good teaching, can fall away and be not, you know, not being used by God and basically cease to exist now, then it can also happen to us as well. Let this warning be to us that it, we need to love Jesus or we too, as a church, can be, can, Christ can remove the lampstand from us as well and we will cease to exist as a church. Again, that's only because we don't love him. So I encourage all of us to evaluate our own hearts. Don't look at other churches. Don't look at other people in this church. Look at your own heart. Are you marked by a love for Christ? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to study um, this passage. What a convicting reminder of the greatest commandment, that we need to love you with all our heart, mind, and soul. Lord, convict us some more every day that um, whatever hobbies, whatever lifestyle, whatever thing that is fun in this world, although they can be enjoyed for the, your glory, may they always be subservient to loving you. And Lord, be with us. Have this, have your word saturate in our minds and that we can grow in our love for you. Praise you in your son's name. Amen.